morning, okay. good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is best-selling author Eric Larson, whose latest book, The Splendid and the Vile, details the first year of Winston Churchill's prime ministry. Eric recently visited Winston-Salem to discuss his new book at Bookmarks. Eric, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Uh, thank you for uh, talking with me. You write in a note at the beginning of your text, and I'm quoting here, although at times it may appear to be otherwise, this is a work of nonfiction. I've always felt like, to me, your nonfiction reads like a novel. What are your thoughts about narrative structure as you approach a new project? Well, you know, um, actually, narrative structure often informs my decision to do a particular book or or not. Yeah, you know, I need to um, I need to see. I need to see the so-called narrative arc, or, or or know what the what the narrative engine is going to be, and 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 I need to to know that it's organic to the story. I mean, you can't you can't fudge things, you can't make stuff up, obviously, because it's nonfiction. So so it has to be an integral part of the story. Like in the case of Splendid and, and the Vile, the story, the 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 story I set out to do was basically to try to find out how Churchill and Company survived. German air campaign uh, against uh, Britain and London. I mean, it just happened to coincide this first major campaign within the parameters of, of, of Churchill's um, first year as prime minister. But what appealed to me was that was that in fact this um, this uh, this campaign came to an end, uh, literally a, a, a year to the day after he became prime minister. But at the same time, on that same weekend. Two other very important narrative threads also conclude, which from a narrative perspective is, is, is gold. I mean, novelists, and I know this, but, you know, novelists can do this at will. They can bring their various threads together for, for a climax at the end of the book, um, you know, because they control all the action. You right. know? But history, history rarely delivers that kind of, that kind of nice um, that kind of nice arc and that nice climactic end. So, so in the in the case of this book, it was really the the narrative as much as anything that that, that drove me to finally pull the trigger and do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know a lot of nonfiction authors, and I'm like this in my nonfiction career, write about a single field, a particular area where they have an expertise or a training or a passion. But your books cover a wide range of historical events from world's fairs to uh, hurricanes to bombing campaigns. What led you to write in in that way rather than picking a particular topic and, and making your career out of that topic? Oh, you know, the way I like to think of it is that I've earned eight, eight PhDs now. So, <laughs> um, you know, you know I, 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 I get bored easily. Um, and to me, a big part of the, the fun and maybe even the rejuvenating aspect of, of, each, of each project is that it's totally new. I don't come at it with, with any preconceptions. I don't come at it with any you know, vast amount of underlying scholarship. I didn't get a PhD in, you know, in, in uh, World War II or anything like that for this book. Um, and I, th- I think it really does, I think it really helps to, 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 to it helps me take a, a fresh view of whatever story I'm actually working on. 
yeah, you can, scholarship is a great thing. Obviously, there are experts in, in you know, fields and that's, they, they sort of build one thing upon another. But it really is the case that you can come at something with a, with a, with, with a, you know, sort of precast conception of how, how, how things were and maybe, maybe ignore new stuff that crops up in the archives. So anyway, I, I think that, I think it just keeps me fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious that how, how do you seek out a particular topic? And, and especially I was fascinated by what led you to this topic. It, it may seem unlikely, but you were led to this by moving to New York city. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, this, this, the, the way I came to this story is, is, you know, distinct to this, to this book. Um, um, every other book has its own origin story, if you will, and, and they're, they're never. I wish there was a formula, but in this case, it was. Um, my, my wife and I were living in uh, Seattle, and our three daughters um, had all grown up and left uh, left home, and you know it was a little, little sleepy for us, and we were ready for a change. So we moved. Well, well it's a long story, but one thing led to another, and we decided to move to Manhattan. So upon arriving in Manhattan, I, I had this kind of a, a epiphany about about nine eleven. I mean, you know, we had watched it, you know, the collapse of the twin towers in real time on CNN, um, and it was horrific enough as, as as it was. But upon arriving in New York, I realized in a very vivid way how different the experience had been for New Yorkers. Not just the fact that they could. You know, they could see the smoke and hear hear sirens, and there was drifting ash and so forth. But also that sense of violation of their home city, and and I, I really, I just immediately started thinking about London, thinking about the Blitz, um, and you know how I mean, nine eleven threw America for a loop, and we're still we're we're still in that loop, mm-hmm. um, whereas. You know, in in London in, in in 1940, the first phase of the Blitz of the air campaign against the uh, against British cities was uh, you know involved 57 consecutive nights of bombing, 57 9/11s in a row, if you will, and and it just made me think, how does anybody survive that kind of experience? So my thought at first was, you know, I, I, I kind of like to explore this, and that's that is one common thread through a bunch of my book ideas, which is. Which is, you know, what would that have been like, or what must that have been like? And so I started thinking about that. I thought, you know, maybe I could get at this by writing about a a, a particular family in London, like maybe the typical London family, right? And then I thought, well, why not write about the quintessential London family, about Churchill and his family and his advisors, and see how they got through this. Because, you know, not only did Churchill have, and his family have to survive um, this nightmare, uh, you know, on a daily basis, but also also Churchill had to had to wage war. He had to run his half of a world war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, that balance is so well met in this book where we're, uh, we're in Churchill's world, we're in the world of the leadership, and yet we also are feeling what it's like to just be a person on the ground in London during the Blitz, night to night, yeah, day good. to day. Yeah. Um, there's a certain clarity, I think, to the main storylines of books like like Dead Wake or Isaac Storm or The Splendid and the Vile. There's there's you know a, a movement through time that makes sense, 
But nonetheless, you have the task of imposing a story onto real history, which doesn't always move along in, in convenient chapters. How do you find the story you want to tell? And, and is there research? Are there things that, that you love but that you have to leave out because they just don't fit the particular story that you're telling? Well, you know, yeah, it's very important to, to, to acknowledge that, you know, when I set out to tell a story, I am setting out to tell a, a particular story, a particular aspect of the ambient history of that, of, of that, that period. I mean, for example, with Seven White City, I mean, you know, my goal was to tell the story of, you know, darkness and light about the killer and about the fair and, and, you know, and, and the building of the fair during, during that same period. And, you know, I had to leave out tremendous portions about the fair because, because it wasn't part of the story, you know. Um, and, and yet, and there's always somebody who come, comes to me and says, well, you left out this whole part and this whole part. And yeah, but that's, that's not the story. So, so like in the case of the Splendid and, and the Vile, obviously there, there's so much that, one can write about. It. I mean, Martin Gilbert, the great uh, the great Churchill biographer, wrote eight full volumes about Winston Churchill, and you know, there's just there's just so much so much material, and even just in 1940-41. But you know, I really wanted to focus on this 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 aspect of of, of how one deals with this this incredibly aggressive air campaign by by Germany and 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 how one deals with it on a on a on a daily basis and so i was i would by necessity you have to sift out um, other elements for example i'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about the German invasion of, of, of Crete, um, except perhaps in passing, because, you know, to, to launch into a whole saga about that battle would take another book. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's a very, very important to, I feel, to, to choose, choose your way. But also, but to do so carefully in the sense that, you know, you can't ignore these things going on. So I, I touch base, I refer, I refer to them, I, I work them into the, perhaps you could think of it as the B matter, the, the paragraphs that, that catch readers up on what's going on elsewhere in the world. Um, because otherwise then you would, you would, you would, you would give a, a sort of a misshapen sense of, of, of the era. So. One of the things I found fascinating about this and, and, I think this must be a difficulty as an author is that as readers, we know how this is going to end. We know that Churchill survives. We know that London survives. We know that the allies win the war. We know that the Germans don't mount a land invasion of Great Britain, but none of that was known in London in, in 1940, 1941. So how do you help the reader overcome our foreknowledge and, and help us live in that world of, of what the people at that time were actually expecting? Sure. You know, this, this is something I pay a lot of attention to. Uh, you know, the screenwriters refer to it as POV point of view. And so I'm very careful to, to look at the world as people looked at it then and to write about what they, what they knew at the time. Um, you know, for example, again, I'll go back to one of my previous books, Dead Wake, about the Lusitania. Uh, in that book, I never refer to World War II. Um, uh, I always, I, I'm sorry, I never refer to World War One. I. I always refer to it as the Great War or the previous war, because there was never a, there was not yet a World War Two yeah. to turn it into a World War One. You see, so point of view is point of view is very important, and I try to try to convey a sense of how how people saw the world around them at a particular moment without without working in. 
what's going to what's going to happen in the future. You know, I'm not going to say, well, this happened on on May May 10, 1940, and 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 in that same paragraph, talk about something that you know how the war is going to end in 1945, because then you pull the reader out of this out of this 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 dream, this nonfiction dream that you're trying to create. And that's a very important concept, by the way. I, 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 I was very influenced in my, my writing by reading a book, um, by reading a book by uh, John Gardner called The Art of Fiction, mm-hmm. yeah, in which he yeah. talks about, you, you probably read this, in which he talks about the importance of creating, in his case, the fictional dream and how important it is to to, to avoid anything that will jolt the reader out of that dream. For example, bad, bad language, bad writing, even italics, you know, he was opposed to random italics. Um, and, and so, and I, I'm, I've, I've kind of modified that and to refer to the non-fictional dream where I, I, I do everything I can to, to, to help readers descend into a past era and to stay in that era, ideally until they're done with the book. Um, and, and in hopes that they will then emerge with a sense of having, having lived in that past time. This is why, by the way, in my books, and I've been taken to task by this, but this is why in my books, you won't find any photographs. You won't find that, that insert of glossy photographs with the various characters, you know, in, in it, because these, I am convinced these, these inserts, um, the, the name of them is, I'm blocking on it right now, but there's a name for these inserts. Um, it, the problem with these things is that when you're reading the book, um, you know, and you're curious about what, you know, maybe what the, what the Frederick Lindemann, the prof looks like in this book, or you're curious about what Pamela Churchill looks like. The problem is, you know, these, these glossy inserts are act to me, uh, I think they act like lighthouse beacons begging you to pull yourself out of the narrative, go find these photographs, look at them, and then come back to the narrative. Yeah, but I yeah. firmly believe that every time you leave the narrative, every time you step away from a book, um, there's a high likelihood that you won't come back, or at least you won't come back for a while. And, and, and that defeats the purpose of what I'm really struggling to, to, to create, through through layering of detail and, and so forth. So, you know, so that's a very important thing for me. So this all makes me feel good about having sat down and read the book straight through in, in about two days, uh, which, <laughs> I, which I would commend to, to other readers. Uh, I, I'm curious about how... Well, well, apparently, apparently there's, uh, there was a news item uh, just, that just ran yesterday that, uh, I don't know how I feel about this, that Harvey Weinstein um, requested my book in, in, his, <laughs> oh, in, his, uh, in his cell at Bellevue um, and uh, read it straight through in 12 hours. Yeah, I don't know if that's good news or bad news. <laughs> I don't know what that means, and I'm not. I don't know. I'm not going to make a big thing, but believe me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm curious about how things like. Um, I mean, I know it's been more than 50 years, but the Official Secrets Act, for instance, kept a lot of information about the British government in World War II secret for for many many decades. Um, yes. Did you have sources whose record keeping was? was difficult to track down or even sources whose record keeping was not strictly speaking legal at the time that they were written down. Well, you know, I, I, obviously one, one of the best, one of the best sources that was, was never strictly legal is, is, was John Colville's, uh, John Colville's diary, which yeah, actually was yeah. published as a, was published as a, as a, as a, you know, a, a, a 
a trade book called Fringes of Power. Um, and he was never supposed to be keeping that diary, but he did. And thankfully, he did because it's a terrific day-to-day account of what life was like at 10 Downing Street during this period. However, um, one, one, one little thing, I, 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 want, I want to get back to the whole thing about documents and secrecy in, in a minute, but one, one thing that that I, 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 I was particularly delighted about. And I don't even know. I don't even know why I did this, but I decided I wanted to check to see what John Colville left out of his diary. So I, you know, I was in Cambridge at Churchill College, and I was going through his actual diary. I, I mean, a, 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 you know, a photographic, digitized, um, photographic um, facsimile of his actual diary. I mean, you know, in his own handwriting and so forth. And. And so I went through it, and, and with with the the published diary um, at uh, at my side to find out what got what got left out. And that, to me, that's where the best stuff is. I mean, mm-hmm. he left out entirely his his pursuit of this young woman named Gay Marges and his, his this unrequited this unrequited romance, which I think was 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 really sheds a lot of light, you know, again, on how people actually went about living during this period, which is to say that they lived, they pursued, they did, did what they could. So that was, to me, that was a real treat. But anyway, the, the whole thing about documents, you know, the, the British were compulsive about, about secrecy, keeping things secret for far longer, frankly, than it was, should ever have been merited, you know, anywhere from 75 even to up to, to, <clears throat> to, to 100 years. So that yeah, there, are, yeah. there are still files that are classified, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, I came across one whole batch of things that were, were, were remain classified, which had to do with the security, keeping the, keeping the prime minister safe at 10 Downing Street. Those are still, um, those are still secret because I guess they're still relevant. I mean, I guess you could use, you know, information from there to find out what the weak points are at 10 Downing Street and, you know, go after, you know, the, the, the current prime minister. Um, but I did, and I did find, I did find a trove of documents that actually had been just declassified last year, um, about, about Rudolf Hess, who has a, a very interesting cameo role in this, in this book. And, you know, and just to, to refresh, I mean, he was the number two, officially the number two guy in, uh, in Hitler's government, although it was really Hermann Goering yeah, who was yeah. anointed as Hitler's successor. But anyway, so Rudolf, so these documents about Rudolf Hess, um, were were unclassified last year, and and you know, reading some of these things, you have to ask yourself, well, why were these even classified in the first place? You know, but anyway, there I think there are I think there are great secrets yet to be yet to be unveiled in in the archives of the UK, and and uh, I have I have absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever. Yeah. One of one of the things that sets this book apart is the sources that you use. Um, and, and one of those sources that I had sort of vaguely heard about in the past, but, but you talk about, and I'd love to have you explain it to us is a project called mass observation. Can you, can you tell our listeners about that? Yes. This to me was a, this to me was a fascinating thing. And and this, by the way, I think cuts, cuts to the value of me, me coming to these, these, these books, um, as, 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 uh, uh, new without, without any sort of prior baggage or, 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 or presumptions. I didn't, when I got into this book, when I started thinking about doing this book, I had no idea that this organization existed. It's called Mass Observation. It was founded before the war, the idea being to, to get a sense of what ordinary, really ordinary 
British life was actually like. As its founders said, the goal was to create a social anthropology of ourselves. So NASA Observation recruited hundreds of diarists to keep daily diaries of, of, their, of their lives, just the, the mundane, mundane, quotidian things that were going on in their lives, and to submit them to NASA Observation on a regular basis. Well, so along comes the war, and, and you know, uh, 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 these diarists continue keeping their diaries, and this becomes a valuable window into, into, wartime, into wartime life. Um, one, one diarist, Olivia Cockett, has a, has a, a pretty significant um, Greek chorus-like role in my book. She's sort of, you know, every man or every woman during the, during the Blitz. Um, and, and her story is, is, I think, a fascinating one. She, she begins with terror. You know, bombings are just this awful, terrorizing thing. And then one day, uh, an incendiary bomb lands outside her house, and she puts it out. Mm. Incendiary, incendiary bombs were what the Germans dropped first to set fire to buildings and so forth um, as a way of, 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 of creating beacons for, for the bombers to follow that had, were carrying high explosives. So she puts out this incendiary bomb, and she feels just suddenly emboldened. She has done this thing. She is not this placid victim of, of war. She has taken a hand and she, is, she has put this thing out. And it changed things 100% for her. She became bolder and braver, although simultaneously her, her married lover became more and more of a coward, which really, <laughs> which really drove, her, drove her nuts. But so that was a, a really interesting counterpoint, sort of a little contrapuntal story to tell as, as this whole thing is unfolding. Yeah, yeah. So we, we have the ability, you have the ability to look at diaries that were written during the Second World War, at letters that were written by Churchill and members of his family. Sure. Um, and yet now I can't even read emails that I wrote, you know, six years ago because the platform has, has been changed. And not very many people I know keep diaries or, or write physical letters. Do you fear for the historians of the future? You know, I, I, I don't fear for the historians of the future. I think their their task will be um, different and possibly more complicated. But you know, you know, you mentioned your emails, but but you know, uh, I, thankfully, the National Archives is is, is archiving you know, uh, you know, presidential and and, and key you know key key. Um, Key catches of, of of email for key events, and and also even even uh, tweets on Twitter. Yeah, a lot of yeah. these things are being captured by the National Archives. And so I, you know, thinking thinking about, for example, let's let's take a look at the, the, the book that I did about the Lusitania. Okay, you know, there, there are no there's no photographic record of of the, the sinking itself. I mean, obviously because everybody either died or wound up in the water, and, and you know, the cameras were just not that that resilient um, at, at that time. So, but, but imagine, imagine, you know, a bunch of people aboard the Lusitania or its equivalent with, with iPhones, yeah. you know, taking, taking images and then sending them off into the ether to their, to their friends and relatives. And you, you've got a, a, a significant record of that event that would be unheard of, of course, back, back in the day. And another thing is that, that there, there is one thing I'm always looking for is a way to, to, to capture the drumbeat of, of an ominous, uh, ominous event, you know, whether it's 
in the case of my book, Isaac Storm, telegrams that were tracking this hurricane that was approaching Galveston, um, or, uh, or, you know, messages, in, you know, following the, following the Lusitania. These things are, these things are the tick-tock, the drumbeat. These things, these things are important to, to generating a head of steam, you know, suspense and so forth. So, but what could be better, you know, than to have a full Twitter record of something? You know, um, you know, cut away to a, I can envision a, you know, a series of single, single paragraph chapters in the midst of a longer narrative that, that had a tweet, yeah. you know, um, about some, some looming catastrophe. So I, 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 I can't really say that I fear for future historians. I, I, let's just say I'm really curious to know how future history will be done without the letters and, and comprehensive diaries that, you know, I have access to for, for past events. Right, right. Now, you mentioned 10 Downing Street, which most of our listeners will know is the official home of, of the prime minister uh, in London. But there are two other houses that feature very prominently in the narrative. Tell us about Checkers and Ditchley. Yeah, so so um, so this is one of the things that that drew me to the story, also. And again, again, I come back to it because I'm because I'm new to this, this this territory. I mean, to me, Checkers and this other this other home were 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 wholly wholly new in terms of their importance and so forth. And I think I knew that the that Checkers was this prime ministerial home, but but you know, for me, I was just fascinated by it. So it it became almost a Almost a, a, a character in in the book. Yeah. Checkers was the Checkers was a is a, is a country home outside up you know, probably about an hour or so outside London, and uh, it was donated to the British government by this gentleman Arthur Lee, its owner, in 1917. The point being to give this 1914, I think, but the point being to give prime ministers a place to go and just. Just you know, just relax and put aside the cares of their work in the hopes that this would help. This would help improve the governing of the British Empire. So here comes Churchill, becomes prime minister, and and you know the day he became prime minister, he he took you know the temporary possession of this house, Checkers. Um, he used it in a very different way than the original owner had intended. Um, the original owner had had stated in the in the in the donating the papers governing the donation that no work was to be done at at, at checkers well uh, churchill was not uh, of, of inclined toward that <laughs> so he packed the house every weekend with guests and there were lunches and, and dinners and, and and there was booze there was there, there were you know croquet matches and and, and so forth and yeah, a lot of business got done, a lot of strategy, a lot of talk. Churchill felt that one of the most powerful, important things about Checkers was that it was a way to take all these government ministers out of London, out of the strictures of their jobs, out of the formality of cabinet meetings or whatever, and maybe get a franker sense of what was going on. So so these weekends at Checkers were were, were wonderful moments. I mean, some, some hysterical little scenes that took place. Yeah. Um, one of the th- it seems to me there's sort of a twin challenge when you're writing about Churchill and the Blitz. One is uh, how do you take these giants of history and make them into to real ordinary people? And the flip side of that is how do you keep these earth shaking events of 57 nights in a row of, of bombing? How, how do you how do you make 50, night 56 as dramatic as it was? How do you keep the how do you make the giants real and how do you keep the 
extraordinary from becoming commonplace? <laughs> These are two very good questions. So, but you'll have, and you'll have to remind me of them in, in order. But, okay. So the first one is how how do you what what, what how, how does one portray these giants of of history in in a way that that, that where you see what 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 are you saying where, where, where we see the the, the, the quotidian selves yeah, um, yeah. Uh, that exist side by side. Well, you know, to me. To me, again, it's a question of perspective. I mean, to me, it's not hard at all because that's what I'm looking for. You know, I, I know that Churchill was this, you know, this this world leader, and and you know, there are there are whole books in which you would never know that, you know, that, that Churchill ever had to go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just this this. You know, you, know, you get you come away with the sense that Churchill won won World War II all by himself. But the things that really appealed to me were the bits and pieces of of his day. You know, of course, how much he drank and his cigars and, the, and how he liked his cigars, you know, were fascinating to me. But also, you know, it was, it was, he was in financial debt. That got cleared up in yeah. this miraculous way. Um, the, 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 uh, one of the things I loved was finding out at Checkers about, about how Churchill – who was perpetually broke and did not make enough uh, money, and, and there was not enough money in the budget to actually you know, serve, serve service all these parties at Checkers. But how, how Churchill drew on the government hospitality fund to acquire, you know, vast stores of of, of booze, but yeah. also how 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 he he he, but you know, it, was, it was his housekeeper who had to do it. But how he and Clementine had to keep track. Of, of who got this booze and how much they drank, because it, uh, the government hospitality fund was only supposed to be used for foreign visitors. So, so just the idea that this, this lofty, you know, this lofty saint of the era um, had to deal with all this other stuff is to me very, very appealing. So it's not that if you look, it, 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 it's all in. It's all in the lens you are using to look at a thing, yeah. and if you if your lens is to is to actually highlight what's happening behind the scenes, and not just dwell on Churchill as as world leader, you know, it, it, it all comes forward. I think I think I'm not going to say effortlessly, but it all comes forward in a way that is 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 is, is graspable. Yeah. Um, but the other point you make is I think it's a very it's a very subtle point. You know, if you've got 57 nights of bombing. So, you know, you can't write about all 57 nights of bombing because, you know, it's, it'll, it'll become tedious. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, there is, there is a volume, uh, a very good volume that is sort of the, the, the bit by bit official history of, of the Blitz that does, of course, deal with every, every, every night. And believe me, it's tedious, but, yeah. it's, but, it's, but it's detailed, you know. But, but so, so what you do is then is you have to kind of pick your, pick your shots. It's important to know that there were 57 nights. And maybe there are three raids among those. And the first is obviously crucial. That's, that's very important. And then maybe there are two others that have some, some important significance. And so by, by, by hitting those three raids, you still manage to convey the a sense of and the importance of the fifty-seven. Um, so, but it's a careful it's a careful test of of nuance. Where this is where this became a particular problem, actually had nothing to do with the fifty-seven nights, but became it had to do with Churchill's speeches. Yeah. Churchill, Churchill, you know, everybody knows a little bit about Churchill's speeches. Everybody can quote one or two lines, probably, probably badly, but everybody can quote right. one or two lines from one, 
one or more speeches. And so there was an interesting calculus that I confronted. I mean, I did not want to get into every speech because that would be, again, and that would be tedious. I mean, people can find those speeches and and so forth, and all that ground has been heavily covered. But I can't ignore them because that's 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 is integral to how 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 Churchill managed to get through that period, and more importantly, how he managed to help the rest of Britain get through that period. Yeah. So what I tried to do then is just sort of briefly talk about some of these speeches, but talk about them in a way that maybe they haven't been talked about before, like why. Like in the case of one speech, I believe it was the one where Churchill says, "You know, it never has so much been, you know, uh, uh, oh, to to so to to so to so few for whatever." I'm, I'm yeah. fracturing that line. Yeah, the RAS. But at the time, at the time, John Colville, uh, Churchill's private secretary, he, he heard that line and he didn't really pay much attention to it. It was just, you know, it's just another speech to him, yeah. which I find fascinating. Another speech, uh, another speech Churchill gave in the House of Commons, which apparently was a really incredibly well-received speech. And then uh, that night uh, uh, over the BBC, he, he, he did the speech again, the, uh, the BBC and, and people who were pushing him to talk had hoped he would do something new, but instead he did the same speech because he was really just being very contrary. He was being very petulant. He didn't want to do this thing, and he, and he didn't want to have to write a whole new thing for this BBC broadcast. So he just used his House of Commons speech, and uh, he delivered it, and audiences... Um, you know, we're sort of struck by the fact that he sounded like he was drunk or, or had, had a stroke or something. And the reason that was the case is because he insisted, he had a real petulant side, he insisted on delivering the whole speech in front of the BBC microphone with a cigar in his mouth. Right. Oh, gosh. You, now, you talk about selecting these certain bombing raids, and, and one of them um, is, culminates in the bombing of a nightclub. And you, yes. to me, you render that scene with, yes, with a novelist's sense of pacing, but with a cinematographer's eye uh, for cross-cutting in some ways. I, and I just wondered what, how other media, whether it be novel writing, fiction writing, or 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 movie making, do those the way those media deal with information affect the way that you create some of these scenes. Well, you know, you know, I, 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 obviously, I, I read, I read. Well, at, at, at night, uh, I never, I never read nonfiction. I, I always read fiction, um, and so I'm, I'm always taking note um, of, of the techniques that that a good novelist uses to uses to move back and forth and, and to to keep my interest going. Like I've always felt that John Irving is particularly good at at kind of kind of working in cliffhangers at the end yeah. of each each chapter or, or segment of the book. Not, I'm not, not talking about ham handed um, cliffhangers, but things that make you really want to move on to the, move on to the next, uh, to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. The scene at, at that, at that, at that, that nightclub. I mean, I, I, partic- I particularly like that scene. Actually. Yeah, it's fantastic. But, 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 you know, I, the only way that that scene can, can work um, is if you have, is if I have, enough material um, uh, of really fine grain material to make it work. And, and happily, there was a lot of that stuff. So I was able to actually craft that scene in a way that I think brings it to life as if maybe as if, as if, as if you're, you're, you're there. And it was a combination of, you know, of, um, 
of archival documents, a combination of uh, some uh, someone the uh, uh, someone wrote a very detailed memoir which had a, a lovely chapter about that particular that particular raid that destroyed that that destroyed that club. But the best thing, the best thing was in the National Archives of the UK, um, there was a uh, there's a file that had a you know the investigation that followed. Um, there was a there was a uh, a map done uh, of the two floors of this club that highlighted, um, uh, you know, done at the time, you know, in, in pencil by people who were the actual investigators who were, you know, the, the, I mean, the plans were actual plans from the building of the thing, but the, the notations were in pencil by the investigators, identifying where people had ended up on the floor, identifying a table where six people had been sitting and were all killed, but mm. with no noticeable injuries. Um, all this stuff was, was in this, um, in this detailed map. And it was just such a tremendously powerful tool to tell the story of that, of that uh, incident, yeah. which, 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 by the way, involved, uh, uh, Mary Churchill, Churchill's youngest living daughter, 17 at the time, uh, 18 at that point, who, uh, who narrowly missed, well, relatively narrowly missed being at that club when that bomb struck. And that was a big part of the story, also. Yeah, I mean, it's an it's an incredibly dramatic scene, and it's it's one of those moments where you think a, a novelist couldn't couldn't have done any better. I mean, you couldn't have made anything up that would be have been more well, dramatic than what actually happened. Yeah. Well, um, and there and there you raised another interesting point, and that is that you know um, um, maybe a novelist could not have gotten this this past readers because you know some of this stuff is kind of unbelievable. I mean, yeah. what the thing that happened to the band leader? We'll save that for readers. Um, but you know, it's, it's so, it's, the whole thing is so macabre, yeah. um, and so detailed that you, you know, I would argue you can only tell it as nonfiction. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's absolutely true. Do you think this is a book we particularly need now? And, and what does it teach us about leadership? Well, you know, when I set out to write this book, I mean, obviously I, I had, I had no political agenda whatsoever. You know, there had not yet been a presidential election in, you know, 2016. And, uh, um, and like I said, I just had that specific, that specific question that I really wanted to explore is how on earth does anybody do this? But as time passed and, and the political situation in this country degraded, um, I, I personally found a kind of solace in this, this era in, in Churchill's clarity and his, and his, 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 and, and his leadership. Um, and, you know, so I think that if there's a takeaway, um, in terms of now, I mean, I think, I think it is really important, uh, or really helpful, uh, at this point to, to, to be reminded of what real leadership looks like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, to be reminded of, of what it can be like to have a leader who actually understands history has a great, you know, great sense of the great, the grand sweep of history and who is, who is well read and articulate and who is also not into, you know, delivering happy talk, but is, is inspiring while also giving, you know, the sober reality of, of, of the event, you know, true, you know, true leadership. And so it's, it's I think it's important. Maybe, maybe this is going to be like a little, Little little island of, of of solace for readers, you know, who, who find themselves just uh, God. I got to get out of here, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into your work. So if you're ready, we will begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, uh, susurrus. Oh, nice. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Epic. Where is your favorite place to write? My office. Where could you never write? Coffee shop. (laughs) To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Serial commas. What was the first book you remember reading? Nancy Drew, The Mystery Uh, of the Clock, or The Mysterious Clock. Yeah. What are you reading now? I'm reading The Death of Mrs. Westaway by Ruth Ware. What book would you like to have written? The Gentleman in Moscow. Oh, yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A narrative history of Pompeii. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? There were so many things in that book that I didn't know. This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Eric Larson, whose latest book, The Splendid and the Vile, is available wherever books are sold. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider posting a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with science writer Neil Shubin, author of Your Inner Fish, about his new book, Some Assembly Required, Decoding Four Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. Neil was to have appeared at Bookmarks on March 19th, but sadly his event was canceled due to the coronavirus outbreak. Here's hoping you and yours will stay safe and well and take these difficult times as a chance to catch up on your reading. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 